together. You know, it's a really wonderful and reassuring thing just as we sort of quiet our hearts before the Lord to realize that particularly uh, what, what Mike was expressing there in communion, just what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, that that, that cry, one we are all familiar and acquainted with, Lord, I need you, is not a cry that bounces off the ceiling It's not a cry that goes out into the vast somewhere with no answer, no response, no assurance that we're being heard. Because one of the really beautiful pictures of what Christ has accomplished for us, that's just, it's it's throughout the scriptures, many of us know it well, is the reality that because of Christ, God, the Lord is our shepherd and we are his sheep. And and we know in Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd and I, I shall not want. And then we go to Psalm 100 and it says, and we are the, his people and the sheep of his pasture and the, the flock of his hand. And there's this beautiful, wonderful, incredible illustration of, of an almighty, infinite, eternal, sovereign God who has this incredible compassion and care and love for his people. Greater love has no one than him that Jesus Christ laid down his life for those he now calls his friends. And Father, we take comfort and we take refuge in that, Lord, not just an illustration from Scripture, but a reality because of the cross, that as your people, as we gather together in your name, Father, week by week, and then we scatter and and go day by day, uh, sort of walking the path you set before us, that you are and always will be our heavenly Father and our good shepherd. And we will always be, because of Christ, your precious, beloved flock and and sheep, that you care deeply for each one of us, that you know our joys and you know our sorrows, and and you can handle all the stuff that's going on in and around and among us. And Father, what good news that is today. Even just this morning, the, the things running through my heart, the things that are happening in our church family, the things that are going on in our nation, Father, oh, how we need you above all other things. Father, we do think, and I'm grateful that we took time this morning to pray for our nation in a new season and with new leadership, Father, that we would always and only continue to keep and put our hope in you. Father, that where there is turmoil, you would bring peace. And Father, where that turmoil enters into our hearts, that you would, your grace and your assurance, your mercy would be greater. Father, we give thanks for the way you're working in our body, the fact that you have brought new life to us, Lord. There are babies who have been born and babies on the way, and we rejoice with each gift you give us, a reminder that you are a God who gives life. You are the author of life. Father, we're mindful as well this morning. Some of us may already be aware that that last night we lost one as well. Father, that you called Jim Zahorik home to your side. And Father, we know that's part of the equation, that this life comes death, Father, that no one escapes it. But we thank you that in calling him last night, that you called him to your side and that he is free and he is whole and he is healthy. Father, he is now what you originally once created and intend all of us to be, and that is home with you. We pray comfort on his family and his loved ones even here among us today. Father, we we thank you that you know the, the secrets of our hearts, Father, that you know our secret joys and you know our secret sorrows. You know the, the things that thrill us and you know the things that scare us to death. And Father, we just come to you once again echoing the words of this song, Oh Lord, how we need you. Oh Lord, how we love you. Oh Lord, how we trust you. Sometimes just against our, our own will even, we, we, we resist and we push, but deep down we know you're our only hope. And Father, I thank you for my part this morning that really the heavy lifting of our gathering has already been done. The foundation's been laid. The message has been proclaimed. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Savior and he is King. We've already sung your praise. We've already worshiped. What we're going to do now is is bonus. But Father, make it count. Make it count. As we open your word, Father, 
May you be the one who teaches. As we open your word, may it not be about a preacher and a message, an outline and a big idea. May it be about a Savior and a wonderful, merciful God. Father, we pray right now, as, as your Holy Spirit has already come and I trust begun to work among us, that, Father, that your Spirit would now just deal with each of us in the, in the personal and secret places of our heart, that you would be the one who comes and guide us, guides us in truth as we open and study and preach your word, that your Spirit would come and guard us from error and misunderstanding and confusion, that none of us would leave with more questions, more confused than we came. Father, even in this moment, whatever baggage we've carried in, we pray that by the power and the grace and the ministry of your Spirit, you'd sweep it all away so that in these moments together we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And may we leave rejoicing in a little while because, Father, by your grace and in your mercy, we got to sit at the feet of Jesus who loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again. It's in his name and for his glory we pray all these things. Lord Jesus, amen and amen. You may be seated. While you're sitting down, we'll let the boys and girls slip out for children's church. If there's any five-year-olds up through second graders, they can head out that back door. They're going to go have a great time in God's Word. And my prayer and my hope is that we are about to do the same, as I will invite you to take out your Bible. Hopefully you have one with you. If not, I'd encourage you to run to the back table there and grab one. And turn in it with me uh, this morning again uh, to the book of God's servant, the prophet Jonah. Jonah's a tiny little book. For those of you who are not familiar with it, maybe aren't sure exactly where to find it, it's right near the end of the Old Testament. And last Sunday we began, if you were not with us, we began a brand new series of studies in the book of Jonah. We'll be here for the next several weeks. And, and I'll do my best in the first couple of moments just to sort of bring you up to speed, either if you were not here and need to know, or if you were and have forgotten. And then we will take a, a sort of a first full step into the story uh, of God's servant Jonah, God's reluctant servant, I might add, Jonah. Uh, this morning. So Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're going to take some time to read it in just a few minutes. But, but again, just to sort of uh, review and to establish what this morning is all about, let me begin by sharing with you or saying, suggesting to you, maybe I best put it that way, that when most of us hear someone referred to, a, 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 a man or a woman referred to as a God-fearing human being, she's a God-fearing woman, that there is a God-fearing man. When we hear that expression, if we use that terminology, I would have to think that most of us, when we hear that, uh, that phrase used, probably think of someone who, at least spiritually speaking, more or less understands what life is all about, uh, the way life really works. They understand, number one, that there's a God and we're not him. And that number two, that, that this life here on planet earth is, is best and most abundantly and in fact most joyfully fully lived when we live it in joyful, humble obedience to him. Through which as a result, because we know there's a God and we're not him, and we have chosen to the best of, of his grace and our excuse me, our own ability to walk in obedience to him. As a result, we deal with others in a similar way, with grace and humility and kindness and compassion. Again, not perfectly, but, but moving in the right direction. That is perhaps what we think of when we hear the phrase, a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman in the best sense of the expression. And I say that to you because in the text we're about to read, there is a whole lot this morning, you're about to see this, of God-fearing going on. 
There's a whole lot of God-fearing in, in Jonah chapter 1, but what I will also say to you, and if you've read ahead, if you know the story, you may already be well aware of it, almost none of the God-fearing in Jonah chapter 1 looks anything like what I just described. There's a lot of fear of God in this chapter, but very, very different from the way or the best way we might think of it. Because what we are about to read the story begins in earnest in, chapter, in verse 3 of chapter 1. But if we back up to the, to the first two verses of Jonah's first chapter, you need to, what you need to know is that what we are about to read, what we are about to see was instigated, first of all, in verse 1, with what we called last week, or what I referred to for you, as an unexpected interruption. Abruptly, without warning, without any sort of, uh, sort of warning shot at all, we're simply told this, that the word of the Lord... God spoke to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and in and through that unexpected interruption, God issued Jonah a truly unthinkable assignment when he said to him, look at verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. There was an unexpected interruption that came in the form of an unthinkable assignment. But what we also saw last Sunday, and this was really the essence of last Sunday's message, is that both of those things, the interruption and the assignment, were brilliant, powerful, compelling illustrations or manifestations of the incredible mercy of God. Both of those things were acts or demonstrations of God's mercy. And, and what I did then, or what we did, is I used that to explain to you or to set before you uh, my conviction that that is really what the story of Jonah is all about, God's mercy. That unlike what I have always thought and perhaps been taught, and perhaps you uh, are in sort of the same situation as I am, that the story of Jonah is so much more than a morality tale about obey God or else, disobey God, and you know, you could end up in the belly of a whale. That's not what Jonah is about at all. That's there, but it's not the big idea. That's there, but it's not the main thing. The real theme of Jonah is, repeat after me, say mercy. All right, and we are going to come back to that again and again. And, and so you know what we're talking about, what I mean when I use that word. Here's the definition of mercy we are working with. And this is sort of a, a, a blend of, of there are several, uh, I told you last week, Old Testament Hebrew words for mercy. And when you sort of pull, put them all together, mix them up, what you get. And Jeff, let's go ahead and throw that definition up there on the screen. The definition of mercy we are working with is this, that it is God's endless, relentless compassion in action. When you hear the word mercy over the next several weeks, and I'm going to use it many, many times again this morning, that's what I want you to think of. That's what I believe we're supposed to think of. The endless and relentless compassion of God in action. And where we resume the story of Jonah this morning, that did God's mercy that unexpected interruption, the unthinkable assignment, as I suggested to you a moment ago, did stir up, stir up the fear of the Lord in Jonah's life and in his heart. But as I also said, in a very different direction, very different way than perhaps, or in fact, it should have. Because when we get to verse 3, if we've read other prophets in the scripture, if we've seen in the Bible, and even if you haven't, you should just, just believe me when I say to you, when we encounter other prophets being called to go and do great things for God, what we would expect to read next in the story of Jonah, if we know the rest of the Bible, would say something like this, verse 3, so Jonah rose up and went to Nineveh. But I don't know about you, that's not what my Bible says. 
Take a look at verse 3 in your Bible, because I think, I have a hunch, it says something very, very different. Because when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Jonah, rise up, go to Nineveh, the great city, for its wickedness has come up, has risen up before me. What my Bible and your Bible say next in verse 3 is this, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish instead from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, and paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, another but Jonah, had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man on board said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, and I quote, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men became extremely frightened. They said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming exceedingly stormy. Now as always in God's word, there's a whole lot here we could look at. And I just want you to know there's a whole lot here we're not going to look at this morning. There are going to be questions that are left unanswered. There are going to be themes and notes and and, and things that are mentioned that we are not going to dig into because I really believe that for our purposes today, what we need to look at is Jonah's response to God's assignment. And, And then everything that almost immediately in these eight verses flowed from it. Because as far as I'm concerned, and again, there may be other questions that go unanswered, but for our purposes this morning, there are three questions I want to deal with. And there are three questions that I want us to work on and wrestle through because, again, they bring out, they bring to our attention, they amplify before us the incredible, infinite, relentless compassion, the mercy of God in action. So here are three questions. They're simple questions. They are not profound, but they lead us to important places. And the first one is this. The first question that I have asked, been asking myself all week as I read this story, is probably the simplest and the most obvious question of all. Number one, question number one, why did Jonah run? The first thing we need to do before we do anything else, sometimes the most obvious questions are are, are A, the easiest ones to miss, but also B, the most important ones to answer. And I think the most important question we can deal with first is why did Jonah run? And in a word, if you want to boil it down to one word, the answer is a word I've used several times already. It is fear, right? Jonah ran to Tarshish because he was afraid, which prompts a second question. This is not the second question of the message. This is a corollary of the first one. Jonah ran because he was afraid, but the question I think we really need to deal with, what was he afraid of? Why did Jonah fear? What was so out of sync, out of kilter, going on in his heart? Fear of what? As I thought about that, I think there are several answers. 
Conveniently, they all begin with the letter D. First of all, danger, right? Danger had to be part of the equation of why Jonah ran, of why Jonah was afraid. Because if you were here last week, or for the sake of those who were not, one of the things we discovered is that Nineveh, the city to which God was calling Jonah to go, was capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was one of the most vicious cultures ever to rise on planet Earth. It was awful. And, and certainly Jonah, as a regular guy, an ordinary human being, was afraid of what might await him by going to such a place, which just so also happened to be Israel, his people's archenemy. So there was danger. I think that was part of it. I don't think that was the whole thing. I think a, a second D he had to grapple with was doubt. I think we all do when God calls us to do great and unexpected things. Doubt. Did God really speak? Is this really, did he really mean what he said? Is he going to go with me? Is he going to take care of me? Am I, am I going to be okay? Doubt, perhaps, that, that an assignment so outwardly apparently ridiculous. <laughs> go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach against it, Jonah. Just you, that's all. Could ever meet with any sort of measure of success, spiritually speaking. So I think danger was a factor. I think doubt was as well. You know what I think was really going on here? What I think the real issue that Jonah was grappling with and reacting to was, I think Jonah simply disagreed. I think Jonah was in disagreement with God's plan for Nineveh altogether. I think the real issue was one of disagreement. Because as I've thought about, I think Jonah, again, I may be wrong, think I might be right when I say to you, I think Jonah knew better than we give him credit for. I think Jonah was more aware of the big picture than perhaps we often realize. And what I mean by that is this. By, by the time Jonah came around, okay, the kings had come and gone, and, and, and David had written his stuff, and, and, and the books of history were out there. And I think Jonah probably knew the familiar mantra repeated throughout the Old Testament, was well acquainted with the fact that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger, filled with loving kindness. Jonah knew God was a merciful God. I think Jonah understood that God was full of grace. And I think when he heard God unexpectedly interrupt, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, it was beginning to dawn on him, or maybe it came full force, that the incredible, endless, relentless compassion of God reached even to Israel's archest of enemies. It wasn't just for him and his kind. God's mercy is for those who are against me, those whom Jonah would probably easily say, we hate. That's how big God's mercy is. What am I saying? I'm saying I think Jonah understood that God wanted to save the Ninevites, and Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. There's something wrong, something going on in his heart. And so when God spoke, Jonah did not, if you continue in the story, merely put his earbuds back in and pretend nothing happened. I didn't hear anything. You hear something? I, I don't, th- no, 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 there was no, vo- no, that's not what he did. Jonah didn't merely ignore God, pretend that God hadn't spoken and spoken to him. No, what verse 3 says, look at your Bible again, is this. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And just in case we missed that message, it's expanded on in the rest of the verse. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Remember when God repeats himself in his word, he's trying to make a point. Paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? What it means, and we'll throw a map up here on the screen. You see it already, just to illustrate it. God wanted Jonah to go 500 miles east. 
Jonah bought a ticket to go 2,500 miles west. That's how, how badly Jonah disagreed with God's plan. He wanted to go, we believe Tarshish was Spain, perhaps Gibraltar there, the, the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea. It wasn't that Jonah was indifferent. Jonah was disobedient. Jonah disagreed. Because this term, this expression, okay, Tarshish, look at verse 3. It's mentioned three times, but something else is repeated here as well, the presence of the Lord. He wanted to go away from the presence of the Lord. Now, again, Jonah lived after David, Solomon, and others. He understood. I'm sure he had heard the psalm that you have heard as well. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I can't get out of the presence of the Lord. I think Jonah knew that. But there's, a, there's an understanding, there's an implication to this expression that, in again, the, ancient, the scholars of ancient Hebrew tell us is there. That this idea of being in the presence of the Lord isn't just a, a, phys, a matter of physical locality. I'm here and God knows it. No, the, the, the real gist of the idea of being in the presence of the Lord is I know God is here and I agree with him. I add my amen to what he's saying, to what he's doing. Jonah knew there was no pillow big enough he could hide his head under that God wouldn't find him. But by fleeing from the presence of the Lord, what he's saying is I'm fleeing from your plan. I'm fleeing from your heart. I don't agree, God, with what you want to do. What am I saying? I'm saying Jonah could not listen. Jonah apparently could not stand a mercy wide enough to encompass people he despised. Jonah ran. Why did Jonah run? Here's the answer. He feared God's mercy. Jonah ran because he feared God's mercy. It was bigger and better and deeper and wider than he could imagine or than he was able in his heart to agree with. However, and here's how God always works, and if you've been around a while, you know this is true. That fact, that reaction only served to amplify God's mercy more. And the reason we know that's true is found in the, the second question I want us to grapple through. Number one, why did Jonah run? Jonah feared God's mercy. He didn't agree with God's mercy. Well, what did that do? Well, we can find that by grappling with this question, question number two, why did the sailors pray? Think with me for a few minutes. Look with me at God's word. And consider, why was it that the sailors prayed? That may seem unrelated to why Jonah ran. Actually, it's not at all. Because don't miss the fact, and I want you just to look in your Bible again at verses 4 through 7. And really, the, the irony, more than a fact, it's really an, an incredible irony. That while the prophet slept, that's what the pagans did. The prophet was sleeping, the pagans were praying. All right? That's what God's word tells us. And, and the irony is, is, is amazing. And the reason they did so, I, again, I believe I will set this thought before you. The reason they did is because I believe that despite what most people say when the, the waters of life are calm, almost everybody prays in a storm, right? Almost everybody, believer in Jesus Christ or not, almost everybody prays in a storm. People may not know who they're praying to. They may not really even know what they uh, expect an answer in return, but, but when life gets hard, when life's seas become stormy, when the wind blows and the rain falls, and it feels like everything is collapsing around you, pretty much everybody prays. One way or another, they cry out for help. Deep down inside, most everyone senses that somewhere or someone or something out there somewhere ought to be able to make it stop, ought to be able to fix it, ought to be able to help. Look again, that, that's what's going on in verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid, and they did what <laughs> sensible people do. Every man cried to his God. 
They all began praying. Now, I know that some people with modern sensibilities might look at that and say, well, that's just a sign of the times. That's what they did in ancient cultures, less enlightened cultures, right? They didn't have scientific explanations. They didn't have textbooks and, and, and an understanding of how the world works that they could fall back on. So that's what, you know, because they were sort of primitive, in their, that's what they do. But now, of course, we're more enlightened and we know better. That's not true at all. That's not the fact of the matter. In fact, a, a Pew Research poll just from a few years ago, 2008, found a scientific poll found, and I know you can do whatever you want with polls, but I think this is fairly revealing, found that only 1.6%, 1.6, think about that number, percent of American adults who were surveyed in this survey truly identified as total dyed-in-the-wool atheists. What's that mean? It means 98.4% of us are hedging our bets. Just a little! <laughs> People will say they're atheistic, but in a storm, they'll cry for help. In a storm, they'll look for hope. Almost everybody prays in a storm. And that points to another near universal principle, which is that most people, as a result, tend to believe that, that every crisis has a cause. Most people also believe that our crises have a cause, that when things go wrong, it's somebody's fault. Somebody did something. Somebody said something. Somebody acted in a way they should not have. Something went wrong. You know, one of our most basic instincts, and again, I know that, that there are people who will debate this, and I am certainly not into philosophy, and I can't debate it at that level, but I believe that one of our most basic human instincts, even though it's corrupted in all of us and denied by some, is that there is order, or there ought to be, there is supposed to be order to the world that we live in. That there is an order underneath it all. How do I know that? E even if that order is broken. How do I know that? Because every time somebody says, and there's been a lot of this lately, that shouldn't be happening. That shouldn't take place. People shouldn't do those kinds of things. This is not the way it should be. Every time someone says that, what is the inescapable, inevitable corollary to that statement? There is a way things should be. We may not agree on it, but there's a way things should be. There's a way things ought to be. Somebody's messing with the system. People's cries for help, their expressions of anger and rage betray the truth that's buried sometimes deep in their heart. There is an order to the world we live in. There's an order to the universe. There's a way things should be. Why do I take the time to express that? Because that's what's going on in verse 7. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so we may learn whose fault this is, who's done wrong. Who's messed up? So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So again, the question is, why did the soldiers pray? And in keeping with that, cast lots. Because everybody prays in a storm. That's what people do when life is hard. We cry for help. We search for answers. Again, with varying levels of conviction about whether or not those answers will come. To which perhaps you're thinking, well, that's nice, that's helpful, maybe that's interesting, but what's it got to do with mercy? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because in this middle section, verses 4 through 7, I think that in this portion of the story, what it reveals about mercy is twofold. Number one, this is sort of the lesser point, at least for our purposes this morning, which is this, that in sending the storm, it's evidence that God loved Jonah so very much that though Jonah ran, he wasn't getting far. 
God didn't let them go far. I mean, you look again at what happens in verse 4. It seems that 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 storm that God hurled onto the sea came very, very shortly after Jonah's ship weighed anchor. God did, God let, but he didn't run very far. I think that's mercy. Jonah, I love you too much to let you get down this road as far as you think. I'm not letting you go 2,500 miles, that's for sure. Because I'm not finished with you yet. And I have a plan. But at a broader and a deeper and a wider level, what this portion of the story shows about God's mercy, and I really want you to listen to this, and I want you to think hard about it, not because Aaron says so, but because it's what the Word of God reveals time and again. What happens in these middle verses, 4, 5, 6, and 7, is incredibly vibrant, brilliant, brilliant proof of God's ability to work even our worst moments and our worst decisions for His glory and for people's good. Why? Think about this. This is how God works. Because if Jonah hadn't run, and we all agree, right, Jonah should not have run, amen? He should have done what God said the first time, but he didn't. Jonah disobeyed. Think about it, though. If Jonah had not run, the storm would not have come. If the storm had not come, the sailors would not have prayed. And if the sailors had not prayed because of the storm that came, because Jonah didn't obey, they never would have had what they were about to get, a very personal encounter with the true and living God. They were about to find out that there is a God in heaven, Jonah's God, and he answers prayers. He cares about people. We we know that principle is true. God takes what's meant for evil, and he works it for good. Jonah did evil. God got the glory. That's how God works. It's... It's mercy. Because moments later, the true and living God would answer their prayer. He would calm the storm and spare their lives. So maybe the best answer to question number two, why did the sailors pray, is because in mercy, God was doing whatever it took to get everybody's attention. Okay, the real issue here is not Jonah. The real issue here is not the storm. The real issue, God was saying, is me. What are you going to do with me? And my endless, relentless compassion. It's mercy. That takes us to a third and final question. First of all, looking at Jonah, then looking at the sailors. And I'm not sure this question is so much in the text as it's just the question that was sort of born of a lot of digging into it and praying about it and thinking it over. But I think it's really sort of for us where the rubber meets the road and is this. As a result, question number three, why did Jonah run? Jonah feared God's mercy. Why did the sailors pray? That's what people do in a storm, and God was showing mercy Here's my question. Who feared God more? Question number three, who in this story, the story's all about the fear of the Lord, who feared God more? Because on one side of the ship, you've got Jonah, right? Down, down in the bowels of the ship, sleeping away, doing his thing. Who, watch this, this is really interesting. When he finally speaks for the first time in his own story, it's verse nine before we even hear Jonah open his mouth. He's not said anything yet. And the first words, but we have the context of verse 8, verses 1 through 8, knowing what he's done, that he's rebelled, that he's gone astray. Here's the first thing that comes out of Jonah's mouth. Look at your Bible. Apparently with a straight face. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And we say, really, bro? (laughs) Really? That's, we know you just woke up, but that's the story you're going with today? 
You fear the Lord God who's in charge of this storm? Uh, We may be mistaken. The rain might have smudged it a little bit, but doesn't that ticket pinned on your vest say Tarshish on it? You fear the Lord? I don't think so. Not in the right way. Not in terms of agreeing and adding our amen and obeying him, trusting him. What do we have going on here in verse 9? We have a classic illustration of one's talk and walk failing to line up, right? That's Jonah. Other side of the boat, we've got the sailors and their captain, who, by my count, in verses 8 through 11, pepper Jonah with at least seven different distinct questions, the most pointed of which is at the end of verse 8, and I want you to look at it with me. When they ask this question, from what people are you? Now, that seems ordinary, and it seems like that's immediately what Jonah answers next when he says, I'm a Hebrew. But what the the Hebrew scholars tell us about that question in particular, from what people are you, the real meaning, the real intent or idea behind that question is this. What kind of person must you be to not be praying in a storm? What kind of person is it who sleeps while everybody else's life is on the line? Who has no care, no evident concern, no compassion? What kind of person are you, Jonah, that you would do this, do that when we are going through this? It's, the same, it's in that same spirit that they ask him the question in verse 10. And they say, how could you do this? What are you thinking Listen, here's what I'm saying. They may have been pagans, but they weren't fools. They understood what was going on. They knew that a God who sends storms like this is not a God you simply ignore. And and so when verse 11 says, when they say to him, look at verse 11, what should we do? You clearly are not concerned about yourself. We are very concerned about ourselves. What should we do to you, (laughs) love that, that the sea may become calm for us? You know what they're asking? What does it take for your God to show mercy? How do we get mercy from your God? Because we're going down. How does your God show mercy? What's mercy look like to him? And while we're going to wait till next week to explore the answer, isn't it clear in the moment who really feared God more, right? Not Jonah. Not in the right with the sailors. I'm not saying they'd hit on the answer yet, but they're a whole lot closer in this moment than Jonah was to being in agreement, to wanting, to longing to know who this God was and what he was like. What am I saying? I'm saying it appears that Jonah's congregation took God more seriously than Jonah did. Irony, trouble. But in a way, a very real way, that too is the endless, it demonstrates the endless, relentless compassion of God in action. Because in mercy, what's going on here? God is awakening everyone on the boat to their real need. Their need for him. Their need for help. Their need for salvation. It's all mercy. And again, that's what Jonah's story is all about. You know, I would imagine that, and I would hope, maybe I say say it that way, I would hope that that those of you who have been around here very long know that that when we get together in a context like this, when we open up the scriptures and study them together, that if all we ever do is explain the scriptures, we've really, I've really only done half my job. If all we ever do is open the Bible and explore what the text says and draw some principles and analyze it and respond to it and maybe even discuss it, 
that really all of us together have only completed, fulfilled half of our assignment. Exploring and explaining are good, but they're not enough. As believers, we're called to apply the scripture as well. To take what we read, to take what we explain, to take what we explore, and figure out what to, what to do with it. The question when we study the Bible, what does it say, should always immediately, inevitably, inevitably be followed by, so what? What now? What should we do? And oftentimes, again, if you've been around here a while, you know that the application of God's word is often very personal and very pointed and involves taking very particular action. We leave here thinking, there's something I need to go home and do. <laughs> there's something I need to go home and not do anymore. There's something that I used to do that I am not doing, but I need to get back to doing. There's something I need to embrace. There's something I need to confess. There is something that needs to happen once I, or maybe even before I walk out those two glass front doors in response, not to what the preacher said, but to what the Spirit spoke to my heart. There is explanation, and then there is application. And this morning, that's as true as ever, but, but at the same time, it's sort of different. Because I don't have a specific action that I think, based on this, we're supposed to take. I don't have three steps of anything we're supposed to go out and practically do. Instead, here's what I think. Two minutes, I promise, and then we're done. Here's what I think, I I think we're supposed to do with what we've seen here. I think what we are supposed to do with what we've seen here, this... Remember, Jonah's book is a revelation to us of God's mercy. Is to take... If you'll think of it this way, whatever sort of circle you've drawn around the mercy of God, that character trait, that attribute, here's what God's mercy is, what it encompasses, what it does, who it applies to, what it accomplishes. I think all of us personally before the Lord need to take the boundaries of that circle, just push them out a little bit further, right? Further than we've pushed them before. Further than we are comfortable pushing them. What was Jonah's problem? He knew he just didn't want God's mercy to cover his enemies. God was pushing that mercy out further than Jonah had ever thought before. Further than Jonah was comfortable going. But that's where God's mercy is. It is endless, relentless compassion of God in action. And then applying our fresh awareness of the mercy of God to the people and the situations that God deliberately, sovereignly, providentially drops into our lives. Because the big idea this morning of the message is that the measure of God's mercy is greater than we think. The measure of God's mercy, what it is, what it accomplishes, where it goes, who it touches, it's so much greater than we think. And every time we think we've corralled it, God says, oh, no, 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 there's more. They're new every morning. His mercies endure. You know, the Bible says forever. That's really, really big. That's really, really deep and wide. And I think getting a grip on that, seeking to grasp that more deeply and more fully is a huge part of what fearing God the right way is all about. So Father, my prayer as always is not that we would leave agreeing with the sermon, agreeing with what the preacher said, but that we would leave, Lord, learning from Jonah's example, agreeing with you and what your word says, what it presents to us in a vivid and a dramatic and a very ironic, unusual way about your endless, relentless compassion for lost people. Father, each one of us is going to encounter some situations, some folks this week, that even if we know God's mercy applies to them, we would rather not have to be the one to show it. 
Father, would you open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to a fresh vision of your mercy, to expanded understanding of how deep and how wide your salvation really is. That what, again, what Mike reminded us of earlier by going to the cross, that greater love has no one than this, than Jesus Christ who laid his life down for us all. Father, take the things of always as truth and seal them to our hearts. Take everything else and wash it away that we may leave seeking, savoring, praising Jesus only in whose name we pray.